I'm Jackie Patton, Managing Director of Inkblot Creative, a new and very different communications and marketing agency. I'm so excited to be back with Series 3 of Stay Connected, where I have got the absolute pleasure of chatting to another fantastic group of business leaders, creatives and everyone in between about how they stay connected. We chat about big goals, important relationships and holding on to a sense of purpose when what's going on in the world isn't always in our control. I can't wait for you to join us for these conversations. So tune in every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher for the next free episode. And if you're enjoying these chats as much as we are, I'd really love for you to leave us a review. This week, I'm talking to Chris Clifford, an international art dealer. What a job title. When I met Chris and found out about his amazingly colourful life and career, I just knew he was going to make a great guest. From his years at art school to selling works by Banksy and Warhol, you really don't want to miss this episode. So sit back, relax and grab a cup of tea. This is Stay Connected. So Chris, welcome. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. And as we were just obviously having a little chat before we hit record, and I was saying on every episode, I asked my guests to bring along something that they feel really connected to, to kind of get us going. So what have you got with you today? What I've brought with me today is a gift from my uh, my grandmother. She's no longer with us, obviously. I'm 50. She passed away many years ago. But it's a ballerina musical box, which she gave me when I was a very small child. And I kept it by the side of my bed. And it was one of those ones, if you remember, you could kind of wind them up. And, and they spin. They, and they spin around and this ballerina came out, but it had lights on it. And it was a magical thing. And I kept it for years. I lost it uh, for some time, but found it again recently in a house move. Um, so I brought that with me because I think that's the thing that really connected me back to, well, the first feeling, like my first time of seeing something magical that I really, really was interested in. Aesthetically, it was very beautiful. Um, it captured my imagination. Uh, the, the technology behind it was basic, but at the time I thought it was fantastically sophisticated. So yeah. it was the first time that I felt like I collected something and owned something that had really rich aesthetic values. And for that reason, I thought that would be poignant, given that today I work as an art dealer. That's amazing. And it's funny you said it because I had one of those when I was a little girl. I remember it, a little jewellery box to put all my treasures in and it played a song and she danced around. So I totally know what you mean about that being magical. So were you close to your grandmother then? I was very close to my grandmother. She lived just literally around the corner and both my parents worked and I was an only child. So as she was in retirement, I spent a lot of time in my formative years with my nan and she was uh, a, a big influence on me in lots of ways i mean my parents are, are wonderful people and they didn't in any way abandon me but my nan um was the one that i think probably had the most influence on my creativity in my formative years she was always encouraging me to draw and to paint um and being an only child that was i think a form of escapism yeah. Um, sometimes from the boredom of everyday life of growing up in the 70s which wasn't a particularly exciting time nobody had much money everyone lived in quite grey houses television wasn't great so um, yeah she was she was a big influence on me and um, very kind to me and gave me lots of gifts and took me off to the red triangle stores in the market 
to buy all sorts of toys. Uh, it's a strange thing to think that she bought me a ballerina musical box, which is probably a typically girly present, but um, I loved it. I was fascinated by it. I was probably only four or five, um, but uh, it was something that I've kept for many years. It's that magic, isn't it, when you're little? Like you say, it's that kind of like you open it and something happens that you're not expecting. And when you're a little kid, that's just the best thing in the world, isn't it? It's a magical feeling. And um, when I play it now, um, it, it still gives me that same sensation. So it keys me back. It's like a mini time machine. It enables me to transport myself back 45 years. Wow. Um, to, Aging yourself uh, like Christmas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so you said that your nan encouraged you to draw and to paint. So is that something that you did from when you were very little then? I've always done it instinctively. Um, I uh, don't think I was particularly academic at school. I wasn't interested in maths. I wasn't interested in science. Uh, it was only much later that I became interested in literature. And I think probably I was a very disruptive individual at school. My parents sent me to Victoria College because they, they wanted me to have a formal education, which they hadn't really had. Um, and I rebelled against the system. I, I felt like a fish out of water. I, I, my parents are lovely, but they come from what you might deem an ordinary working class family. And going to school at Victoria College at the time felt as if I was surrounded by very wealthy kids whose fathers were lawyers and accountants and bankers and what have you. Uh, and my dad was a plumber and my mum was a jeweler. And, um, they loved me very much and I grew up in a very warm household, but I felt very different from lots of the kids at my school. And I felt a bit on the outside. I felt like an outsider looking in. And I think that ability to observe the world around me um, helped me to formalize my feelings and emotions through drawing and through painting um, and give me a form of expression. But um, I, yeah, I, I switched off in the maths class and the science classes I just wanted to draw and wanted to paint. So um, that was the beginnings of it. And did you have an opportunity when you were at school to do that in kind of an art class or were you just doing it all the time? Well, I was doing it all the time. But weirdly, when I was given eventually the chance to do an O-level in art, I passed it up. I, I, I think I, I, I can't think what I was thinking at the time, but I just I, I thought, no, I'm going to do some more academic subjects. Um, so it was only until I got my O levels and was able to go on and do A levels that I thought I can't keep this in my locker. I've got to get out and do it more. Um, unfortunately, I had a very good art teacher in uh, the late Bob Tilling. Um, who was a massive influence on me and uh, was a great fountain of knowledge in terms of art history and specific, specifically British art history. Um, so it was a creative outlet that was allowed to flourish. And Bob was such a wonderful educator that of the 10 boys that were studying A-level art in my class, we all got A's. Um, wow. And most of us went off to study at art school. So um, as soon as I as soon as I got my teeth into A level art, I knew I only wanted to go to art school. I only wanted to be an artist. I didn't want to do anything else. Um, it was a single fascination for me. And so my other A level subjects kind of helped to inform that. I studied uh, technical drawing, which was kind of like another art class in a way. 
and I studied philosophy, which kind of gave me um, a wider understanding of the concepts around art and of culture. So um, it positioned me well for when I eventually turned up at art school with hair down my back and flared trousers. That's how everyone turns up at an art school. I went to an arts college and there was a lot of dubious hairdos and outfits. Uh, so did you you went to college in London, didn't you? So I, well, first off, you have to do a foundation course. So I studied at Winchester School of Art, um, which was kind of like a halfway house. Looking back, I was quite nervous about going to London at the age of 18. I came from Jersey. I hadn't really travelled very much. It wasn't particularly worldly. Winchester School of Art did a very good foundation course. They had lots of interesting tutors on that course. So I saw that as a kind of, halfway house to getting to London, which was my longer term objective. Um, but Winchester is uh, 10 minutes on the train to Eastleigh train station, Southampton Airport. Um, so I could be back home in a couple of hours if I panicked. So that seemed to be the same thing to do. Um, I didn't come back very much, actually. I was uh, completely immersed in a wonderful experience of being an art student. But when I completed that foundation course, I only wanted to go and study at one college, which was Goldsmiths College in London, which at the time was one of the leading art schools in the world, and it had had a generation of artists such as Damien Hirst, uh, Michael Landy, Abigail Lane, um, you know, people like Tracy Emin, who went on to become internationally acclaimed artists, largely through the patronage of the now infamous art dealer, Charles Saatchi. Um, but he promoted them um, through an exhibition in London called Sensation, uh, which people will remember as being one where there was pickled sharks in formaldehyde and unmade beds, uh, which were hugely controversial at the time. Uh, I can remember going to the opening at the Royal Academy in London, which was a huge success. And when the show finished, it travelled to the Brooklyn Museum in New York, uh, where it wasn't well received. And as we turned up, uh, for the preview, um, we had gangs and gangs of uh, right-wing Christian fundamentalists who pelted us with eggs as we turned up to the preview. That was because um, one of the artists, a British artist called Chris Ophelia, a black artist, had painted a black Virgin Mary, um, which was seen as, uh, well, blasphemous. And within three days, the then mayor of New York, the now even more infamous Rudolf Giuliani, had closed the show down. Um, all that sought to do was to propel those artists onto the world stage. The international news media covered it, covered all of the artworks and all the artists involved, and they went on to become internationally famous. So I was kind of not directly involved with it, but they were all contemporaries of mine. We were all friends. Um, and at that point, I recognized that there was a thing called the art market, and it interested me to be part of that world. That's fascinating. So you kind of went into art college thinking, I'm going to be an artist. And you came out of it thinking, I'm going to buy and sell art? I did. And I, I, I had a dealer that I worked for in London. I had a small gallery in New York as well called Casting Schubert. And I showed work with him for a few years. Um, unfortunately, financially, the gallery didn't work out. And I was left... Um, in a situation where uh, I was owed quite a lot of money. And as a young person uh, without a contract, and I'd done everything on trust up to that point, 
I had to make a decision on what to do next. So I had to get a proper job and stop being an artist in order to pay my bills. In fact, my debts. So having had quite a lot of money and then spent it on building an exhibition, uh, which I thought the gallery was going to pay for, the gallery folded, was bankrupt, and I was left with the debt. So um, it kind of spoiled my appetite for being an artist. And it made me feel quite jaundiced about the art market. Um, and I went off and I worked for um, United International Pictures, which is a film distributor. I still wanted to do visual things, I trained as an editor. I used to make TV commercials, radio commercials, um, cinema trailers for three studios in Hollywood, uh, MGM, Paramount, and Universal. Um, and I traveled a lot. I worked in LA and I worked in New York and I worked in London. Um, and I paid off my debts. And I still kept turning up to exhibition previews and going to museums and seeing shows, but the desire to make art wasn't there anymore in me. I found it very difficult to trust myself, to then trust the dealer to help to sell the work and all of that. So I just kind of paddled my own canoe for, for many years until really I returned to Jersey in about 2000 um, and started to work for the Jersey Arts Trust, as it was known then. It's called Art House Jersey now. And that was a grant-giving body and a policy-providing um, department for the arts in Jersey. And it oversaw funding for the Opera House and the Arts Centre, St. James's Centre, festivals and events it sponsored. And it gave grants to young and emerging artists to do projects on island and uh, off island as well. So I, I got my teeth into arts administration, um, which felt good, except I think I probably stayed there for a year or two too long. I was there for seven or eight years. And okay. it was against a background of continual states cuts. And at the time, um, the politicians of the day weren't receptive. I, mean, I don't think many Jersey politicians are receptive to culture in the broadest sense. But at the time, I remember doing presentations to the then Finance and Economics Committee and standing up for 10 minutes, doing a presentation. And at the end, they would say, well, your budget's going to be cut by 5% again this year. And you just felt they don't get what all this is about. And so... Um, I left there um, after seven or eight years as director and started to set up on my own. And it's kind of led me into the position that I'm in now. So I guess it's it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I'm like listening to you talk about that journey from kind of leaving Jersey to go and do your foundation in Winchester as somebody that was thinking, well, it's only a 10 minute train journey to the nearest airport home. Yeah. <laughs> Ending up being someone that traveled all over the world, doing all these different things. Do you reckon kind of Chris, when he was 18 and heading off to his foundation, would have ever thought you would have had the kind of career that you've ended up having? No, I think I was painfully shy when I was younger. I think I think a lot of artists uh, are shy people. They're quite introverted. Um, they use art as a means of self-expression because they don't feel self-confident and articulate in talking about their ideas. They allow their art to talk for them. Um, and it is a bit of a defense mechanism and it can be a coping mechanism um, with sometimes what appears to be a quite difficult world to navigate. Um, so you could say that I probably recognize that art was a form of therapy for me. 
um, and that it helped me to understand my place in the world. But obviously, as I've grown in age and had more life experience and gained more confidence um, and understood now what art is in a real commercial sense, um, it's given me a huge amount back. I never could have imagined it at 18, but now that I'm almost 50, um, I can't imagine doing anything else. I mean, I, I did have a job once. It was a summer holiday job where I came back to Jersey and I worked at RBSI, uh, and it was in their payments department. So I was processing um, dividend payments on a system called Swift and Crest Payments. Anyone that will know that world will know that it's quite boring. I lasted two days. Wow. And, and that was the only real office experience that I've had. I, I, I'm not someone that feels comfortable sitting in rows and rows of kind of desks in an office kind of corporate environment. I, I, I feel very much like I need to do what I need to do to make me feel happy. So, yeah, I've ended up running a gallery. Um, and uh, I really enjoy it because I'm my own boss. I'm basically unemployable in any other walk of life. <laughs> Love it. And you mentioned before when you were talking about going to school, so yeah. you went to Victoria College. So for our listeners that um, maybe don't know Jersey, that's a private boys' school. Yeah. And you kind of said that you felt a bit kind of like outside looking in when you were there because your you know, family were maybe a bit different to the, the families of the kids that were typically their students. Yeah. Do you think that that experience, though, has helped you now? Because I'm imagining that a lot of your clients must be quite wealthy people and you must have to move in these fancy circles. Does it? Do you think that that kind of helped? Of course, absolutely it helps. You don't know at the time that it's helpful to you, but what's interesting is that, that now that I've returned to Jersey uh, and I have a well-established business, um, lots of those contemporaries of mine, uh, they're now senior partners in law firms, they're bank managers, they're directors of trust companies. Um, now, they may not have been particularly friendly or friends with me at the time that I was schooled, but we've always retained a kind of uh, a, a good, you know, appreciation of each other's career trajectories. Interestingly, um, lots of their kids um, now study art and design and fashion and film and photography. So not only have they become clients and not only have they come to the gallery, uh, not only do they sponsor exhibitions, uh, host events, drinks receptions, um, make presentations for corporate events at the gallery space. Um, but I also help to support their kids and advise them on where they should go to art school, what kind of colleges they should be studying, what's a good course, what's a not so good course, where regionally they should be if they're interested in a specialist subject. So um, all of that's come back into play. I mean, I... I never joined the OVs, the old Victorian society, when I when I was 18. I was offered the chance to join it, and I couldn't think of anything worse. And I'm kind of famously unclubbable in that regard. But um, I was recently asked to attend an OVs dinner at the Caponina. Um, oh, I love it in there. Just for the listeners, it's like the most old-school Italian place. They bring out a dessert trolley. Oh, Silver service. Old school, as you say. So um, I've kind of enjoyed going back over that now at a long distance and just kind of reconnecting with people. Um, so that's been quite pleasant. But, um, yeah, I'm still uh, 
fiercely autonomous. So uh, I'm not going to be going to so many of those events. It's funny, though, because you say you're fiercely autonomous, but throughout our conversation so far, you've mentioned a number of people that have had a real impact on you. You said your your nan, obviously, and your art teacher at school. Was it Bob Tilling? Did you say his name was? Bob Tilling, yeah. So there's obviously people that have guided you along the way. Would you have said that they were probably your main mentors on your way through your career? There's key people I can look back on. I mean, you know, my parents are big influence on me, my nan. My formative years, Bob Tilling, whilst I was at school, when I went to Goldsmiths College um, at that time, the teaching staff were incredibly well-known and successful artists in their own right. My tutor in my final year at Goldsmiths was a a chap called Michael Craig Martin, who was an artist who... um, was the curator of the Royal Academy Summer Show a couple of years ago. He's one of, although he was born in America, um, has been in Britain for many years. He was the educator, if you like, of that whole generation of young British artists. Um, he now shows his work with Larry Gagosi and the biggest art dealer on earth. His paintings go for millions and millions of pounds. Um, they're in all the major museum collections in the Tate, Museum of Modern Art in New York. And, um, Michael was a massive influence on me. Um, when I was growing up, I respected him because he was successful commercially as an artist, but because he was kind and informative and giving of his time and supportive of young people and wanting to make sure that they got on and made a success of their life. So there have been people like that throughout my life that have helped to kind of guide me. Um, mm-hmm. Actors, well, I kind of mentor in some ways, but almost like an inspiration to see where you can get to at the next level. Um, I think I probably always set goals for myself. I've always tried to achieve commercial success and maintained a happy balance between work and life. So um, I think the people. It's hard to do, right? As you get older and your business becomes more successful, then it does become more hard to do because you have to pick and choose what it is you want to do. And I've come to realize that I can't do it all. You know, there's, there's, I mean, I, I work, I do public art consultancy. I work with architects on architectural design projects. I design public realm schemes. I run a gallery program, so I work with artists. Uh, we also be looking at property development and other things like that. So there's lots of different bits of Chris Clifford. Um, as I get older, um, I find I have to be very clear about the choices I make. Otherwise, I just stay at work all day. And um, mm. all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. So, um, I can't imagine when you've been an international art dealer that it has been all work and no play, though. That's the kind of career where you think there's got to have been some good play in amongst that. Well, I think there was a time when I worked as a journalist for um, the art newspaper, which is a big global publication. Um, it's an industry magazine that reports on sales primarily, but also gossip and, um, you know, who's sleeping with who in the art world and all that kind of stuff. And I worked as a journalist for them. I, I went all over the world with them. They didn't pay me very much, but they um, they gave me nice hotels and business class flights, and they gave me access to the top tier of the international art market. So one minute you'd be in Abu Dhabi, uh, um, a museum opening. Next minute you'd be at an auction in Moscow, or you'd be at a premiere in New York. Um, and the the art world at the top, I mean, is 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 you know, there's a lot of money. Um, and there's lots of parties and the big international art fairs 
are the biggest parties of them all. Now, they've been closed for the last year, um, mm. but the, invariably they're sponsored by uh, banking organizations who have these very expensive corporate lounges, um, and they throw great parties. So that it's always a great joy to be at those events because you're meeting like-minded people, artists, dealers, collectors, museum directors, um, corporate sponsors, all of whom have a deep, uh, interesting fascination with the international art market, um, but all set against the background of chinking champagne glasses and lobster tails and Aberdeen Angus steak. So um, if you, like me, are a bon vivant, someone who's interested in the finer things in life, then that's a great way to learn and relax and unwind at the same time. And when, um, so we've talked a lot about kind of art as a concept, but is there any particular art or artist that you feel really connected to personally? It's interesting because when you become an art dealer, I set this gallery up, I mean, I've been dealing art for about the last 12 years, but when I set the gallery up four years ago, um, I read a book by probably the most famous art dealer ever in the history of art dealers. It's a chap called Duveen, who was French. And he befriended the uh, Impressionists and the post-Impressionist painters in Paris at the turn of the 19th century. Um, and he did it purely as a businessman. He was interested in art, but what he did is he took those artists' works to America and to New York. And he would ship them over uh, and have exhibitions. And he would sell these paintings for exorbitant sums of money to very, very wealthy American industrialists um, who were living on massive apartments overlooking um, you know, Central Park and what have you. He, he made an absolute fortune from this, uh, was a multimillionaire in his own right. But the key thing that Duveen always said was, never sell the thing that you like sell the thing that you think you can sell. So he was basically saying, don't trust your own taste. Um, you've got to find out more about what the public wants and be able to sell it to them if you're going to be successful, which kind of makes perfect sense. But the reason I mention it is because the amount of art dealers that have failed because they said, oh, I love this artist. I think they're amazing. And they back into the hill only to then find out that they don't have a business proposition two or three years down the line because their tastes are either too sophisticated or too far ahead of the curve for other people to buy into it. So you have to, it has to be a balancing act. You know, there will be times when I'll do a show with an artist that I think I just think they're great, but you always have to back it up with something that you know will be commercially successful. So at the start of the year, and we're in January now, what I'm doing is sitting down, working out an exhibition roster for the year ahead that has those component parts in it, that has things that I think I'm pretty sure that will be commercially successful and other things that I think, well, actually, that probably won't be. What that will do is establish the brand of the gallery as something which is innovative, creative, forward-thinking, and interested in the currency of new ideas. You know, this is a culture business. So we have to put new things on the table all the time to keep ourselves fresh and engaged with our audience. So those are the challenges that I face. But um, yeah, there are, there are artists that I like more than others, um, but it's probably not very professionally diplomatic for me to say. <laughs> Nicely dodged, I like that. Yeah. I did, I've always wondered if when you go to kind of galleries, 
if the stuff that's on the walls in a gallery is the stuff that would be on the walls in the house of the person that's exhibiting everything. And it sounds like not always. No, I think when you, if you go to most dealers' houses, um, and I've got lots of friends that are dealers in London, in New York, um, what they're showing on their, their, their gallery walls is often quite outlandish. And when they go, when you go home, their houses are quite conservative and um, they might have very specific tastes. I mean, I'm interested in a particular art form. It's called Dan Shekwa. It's um, Korean post Second World War minimalist painting. I mean, it's really obscure. Um, but it's very understated. I'm glad you said that because I'm thinking, is this a word I should have known? Should I know? About it? <laughs> it's now a major post-war um, art movement, which is understood and recognised. And there was a big show uh, at the Guggenheim in New York about 10 years ago, which helped to define it as that. But prior to that, people were not really sure what this art movement was about. I loved it because I'm interested in minimalism. I'm interested in less is more. I'm interested in less clutter, declutter, um, a kind of more zen-like approach to life. And that's how I like to live at home. Um, so that art seemed to make a lot of sense to me because it was all about those kind of values. Um, so that's what my place is like. But if you come to my gallery, you'll see some massively exuberant, colorful, bright paintings by outlandish artists. The next show that we're doing is a figurative painting show. We've got three artists, all of whom are really bold, bright, colorful, exuberant characters. They wear outrageous clothes. They have extraordinary personalities. And that's great to be able to promote that kind of art because yeah. art at the end of the day is a wider reflection of society and, and how we choose to live our lives. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not like that at home myself. <laughs> Love it. And you mentioned before that you've kind of, as you've moved through your career, you've had to think more about the choices you make so that you can get some good balance between work and kind of the rest of your life. So, you know, how important is it for you to make sure you've got those really good connections with, you know, people that aren't in your work sphere? Yeah, it's vital. I mean, I, I, have, uh, I have a daughter who's 16. Um, and we spend a lot of time together, and it's been a joy to watch her grow up. Uh, I think, unfortunately, when she was younger, I dragged her around every single museum and art gallery in, in London. So she's not, um, she's not going to end up, you know, being. It's going to go two ways, that isn't it? <laughs> we had a chat the other day. She's just in the process of doing a GCSEs, and I said, "What are you going to do for A levels?" She said, "I'm going to do psychology." English literature and sociology. I said, what do you want to be? And she says, I want to be a criminal psychologist. I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, good luck to her. My parents never stood in my way. They always let me do whatever I wanted to do. I was the first one in my family to ever go to university for generations and generations. So um, I'm just pleased that she's doing what she wants to do and that she's happy. Um, I think that's rightly important. But, uh, yeah, I've gone off the point. What was your question again? I was just saying about the connections in your life outside of work, like yeah. how important it is to have them. And it sounds like you've mentioned your family a lot, so it sounds like your family is a really big part of that for you. It's really important. My, but my parents are uh, still alive. They're in their 80s. They're both fighting fit. They're both party. Um, and, um, you know, they're, they're fully engaged. This last year, because of lockdown, has presented a whole new raft of challenges. 
Um, but as a family, we kind of worked around it and stuck together um, and made it work for us all. Um, but I have to say, I can't wait for the time when all this is hopefully behind us. It's probably going to be another 12 months before we can fully see the back of it, I think. But um, I just want to be able to travel. Um, I want. I miss going to museums. I miss going with my family to see stuff in London. Um, I miss traveling to you know the European continent. To you know looking at all the museums and galleries. I like to go to bars and restaurants. I like to go and watch outdoor cinema. I like swimming on the beach, eating seafood, drinking white wine, getting sunburned, jumping in the sea. All of that stuff. Um, I do feel a bit kind of sad about not being able to have access to but i think it's really important that whilst we're quite lucky in jersey that we're geographically isolated we just kind of knuckle down and, and get on with it look after the people that we love make sure that we're all okay um, look after the business look after the artists that, that we support um, i think that was really a key consideration in setting this company up because the experience i had that i referred to right at the start when i worked with this and it didn't work out well for me has put me in a position now where I feel like I can be a good art dealer where I can look after the interests of artists I can encourage them to take risks I can make sure that they're looked after financially and commercially um, and that's what you need as if you're a young and an emerging artist you need the benefit of someone's experience um, and you need to be able to trust them so trust is really really important not just in family life but in the art world, because most of it, believe it or not, is still based on trust. If I want to get a show of Picasso paintings from a dealer in London, uh, I can. And it's a case of phoning up and saying, can you let me have these things? And if they know me, and if, if, they, if they know that, that I can sell them, then I've never had any trouble getting really, really important paintings and sculptures and things like that here in Jersey, which was the whole point setting up the gallery gallery was never meant to be uh, just a platform for local artists because there are lots of other little galleries over here that are doing that wasn't really interesting to me to be showing paintings of corbier lighthouse or daffodils in fields you know i wanted to bring the very best of the top tier of the international art market to jersey and say to people this exists because I genuinely felt there was an educational imbalance, an awareness of the fact that that world existed. And it was well, you say like we're kind of geographically cut off, aren't we? Which in some ways, like in a pandemic, is helpful. But it also means that the culture is different, right? Different things permeate through and some things get missed out, I guess. Yeah, it's not London. It's not New York. You know, you're not bombarded by stuff all the time. It's a much, much smaller community. And although it's a relatively wealthy community, it's not rich to the same extent as places like London or New York are. And I don't just mean culturally. I mean, we tend to think that Jersey has lots of millionaires, but they're not multi-millionaires that are spending 15 million pounds on a painting. They're not going to the auction to spend 100 million pounds on a Picasso or a Cezanne. Those people, by and large, there's a few here, I know who they are, but it's not prevalent. So you have to bring interesting things to Jersey, culturally speaking, at the right price point if you're going to make it work commercially. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess it's that balance of things that you find really exciting and the things you know are going to sell 
I guess that's always going to be a juggling act. Yeah, it? it's a difficult one. I've got lots of friends that are really, really interesting artists and, and we're mates and we talk all the time and they say to me, can you give me a show at your gallery? And I have to say no. And it's not because I don't believe in them as artists or that I don't think that their work wouldn't be well received, but it certainly wouldn't be acquired. So the cost of packing, shipping, insurance, you know, staging an exhibition, all the overheads, the running costs, you know, the marketing, we make films, we do 3D virtual tours, we do digital catalogs, you know, we're quite heavy on, on the front end of marketing projects, um, would go to waste because ultimately, if you're not going to sell anything, then, then what's the point? So you always have to kind of calibrate your ambitions uh, by what is commercially achievable. Um, I'm thinking of a guy called Samuel Foraker, who's a video artist um, okay. who makes extraordinary video installations. Um, but really, the only people that, that can that can place those things and display them are museums. Yeah, you can't put it at home. You can't put yeah. it at home. You can put it in a football pitch type warehouse. So you can put it in the turbine hall at Tate Modern. You can put it in the reception area at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. You can't put it in an apartment in St. John's. Yes. That's the difference. <laughs> <laughs> As we're recording this, sat in my apartment, recording in a little light box with some pillows so that it makes sense. And I'm thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't think I've got the wall space for something like that. No, no, no. Samuel's a brilliant, brilliant mind, a hugely intellectual person and a technically gifted artist who's making work that's fascinating and deeply insightful about contemporary culture and the nature of the society in which we live in and um, just can't show him here at the moment. You know, it's not, it's not possible to do it. There'll, there'll come a time, you know, but it takes a while to get, you know, it's a small business. So I'm a small business owner effectively. And we've been going three or four years, but you have to really build up a lot of capital to be able to say, you know what, we're going to do that show and we don't care if no one comes and we don't care if it's not well received and we don't care if we don't sell anything. Not quite in that position yet. You need to just kind of tread carefully, navigate people's tastes. Jersey's quite conservative culturally. Um, it hasn't had the exposure to the international contemporary art market that other bigger cities will have had. So you have to just kind of pick what you think is going to work and what's not. You've mentioned we've been um, chatting, going to museums and how you're excited to be able to go and see all those wonderful things again. Is that one of the places that you feel most kind of relaxed? It is. It's, 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 it's a strange feeling. Um, it's, it, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, many years ago, I um, had I've been in Jersey for about, uh, I think I'd moved back to Jersey and I hadn't left Jersey for about six months. And I bought some furniture from John Lewis. Okay. And I decided to, rather than get it shipped over, to go and get it myself. And John Lewis was in Milton Keynes. The warehouse was in Milton Keynes. And um, I didn't know there was a contemporary art gallery in Milton Keynes. It's actually a very, very good gallery. And it's right next to um, John Lewis. Now you know. <laughs> and, I know. Anyway, I stumbled across it. And there was a really interesting um, video artist that was showing there at the time and as soon as i walked into the gallery space and i've not been in the gallery for literally i don't know a month a year it was this like a weight come off my shoulders 
suppose if you're an actress and you go to the theatre and you haven't been for ages, it's a feeling like you've come home, that you understand it, that you feel comfortable in it, that you're looking to be challenged intellectually, you're looking to think about things in a way that you haven't been thinking about them before or in some time. So that I remember feeling a huge rush of joy, although I didn't particularly even like the work that was on display. It was interesting work, but it wasn't, you know, something that, that I would um, buy as such. But um, I just like being in that environment and in that space. And every day when I come into work and I can walk into my gallery spaces and they're big and they're light and they're airy and, you know, I think we sell really cool things. It gives me a great sense. Well, it makes me feel like I'm not going to work. And that's the difference. You know, it's like I, I, I just get to enjoy what I do every day. And, um, yeah, that's the most important thing for me. It, I, you know, I have, you know, I said to you before, I've done a job in the past. And I've done various jobs over the years where it's ended up where you've had a slightly sick feeling in your stomach first thing in the morning. Your stomach's in knots and you're thinking, I really don't want to go and do that. The Sunday night doom. <laughs> and you just tough it out and then you can't wait for Friday. You can't wait to get home and, and just go, oh, two days, I have to think about that. I've been in those jobs. I don't get that anymore. And um, that's a huge reward for me. It's psychologically beneficial to me. It lifts my spirits. It enables me to feel a lot freer as a person. To be able to pick and choose, you know, the things that I like doing is, um, I mean, it sounds quite selfish. And I guess given that I'm an only child, that, that may be a personality trait of mine. You know, my, my mum has always said that I'm quite a selfish person. Well, um, Our mums are just brutally honest. <laughs> but um, that's just the way that I am. It's the way that I've been made up. And it's the reason why I've made the decisions I think that I have about the career that I've developed and the, the friendships and um, the relationships that I've developed with people over time has been because of that. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think when you run a business, like you're saying, you're a business owner, you have to... It's, it's quite a singular mindset, isn't it? Because we talked about this before we started recording, this idea of you're wearing many hats. And it can be quite hard to kind of have that time to switch off or have that time to make really clear goals about what you want to do because you are doing all the things all the time. And that can be kind of, sometimes you're making quite selfish decisions and sometimes it can be a bit lonely as well, right? Because you are all things. Yeah, I think the other thing that, that impinges on it a lot as well is, is um, I mean, I do try and, you know, I, I, my girlfriend is is quite, you know, not strict, but just, you know, what we're doing at the weekend, kind of comes up on Thursday evenings. You know, I could work seven days a week. I don't. I try and take the weekends off. It's really important to have that time where you can just step away. But, but I think what impinges on all of our lives in a de detrimental sense to some degree is our over-reliance upon social media, how we're glued to our smartphones. You know, that is, um, it's like, it feels like it's a necessary evil for my business. Instagram, especially, I mean, is, is highly addictive. Um, you know, you put a post up, you promote an exhibition, you get hundreds of likes, you sit there watching your phone, click, 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 click. You're like, brilliant, 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 brilliant. And that can be invasive. There's times when my girlfriend looks at me and says, why do you keep checking your phone? And I'm like, oh, I just did a post about an hour ago on our latest exhibition. I'm just seeing what it's, you know, what people are saying about it. 
that that can be a thing. It's 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 um, divisive with young people. I know my daughter is at that age now, where it feels like I mean, certainly a year or two ago, it was much worse than it is now, actually. But she was totally reliant upon her phone. You know, Snapchat is kind of like a crack cocaine for kids because you get points. Aren't they? They're built to be like that. They're designed like that, so that you get more points. You go up a rankings league the more times you share images or content. And they just want to climb up the rankings and be higher up and higher up. And I just used to sit in the car with her while she was just, you know, taking her to school in the morning where she was just addicted to her phone. Wouldn't talk to me. And all of that was just a bit, she's, she's coming out of that phase now, which is, hugely rewarding but um those kind of pressures of modern life um can sometimes you need to keep them in check you need to make sure that you give space for other people around you that you engage with them that you just switch your phone off and go for a nice long walk with the dog or go on the beach or just don't take your phone out if you go for dinner those kind of things super important so yeah i'm I'm aware of it very aware of that and do you have any um kind of things that you're hoping to do more of or do better in the coming year? Anything that you think actually that's, you know, a big goal for you this year? Um, This year, the aim is to do less shows, but of a higher quality. Um, What I found in the past is um, I've done shows in Jersey, small place, population of 110,000, whatever it is. Um, if you do a show after two weeks, the footfall trails off quite dramatically. And I've felt in the past, therefore, pressure to put something else on almost immediately. So I was doing shows like two-week show, three-week show, and then gearing up again to do another one. So I was doing 12, 14 shows a year. It's kind of a big commitment. Actually, I think the way that I'm going to do the business has developed is that I've got some amazing clients now. They're not always here. They travel in mm-hmm. They've got homes in the south of France or the Caribbean. So I think if I can put really, really high quality shows on and leave them on for a month to six weeks, um, the business will still be there. Um, but it means I don't have to just keep, you know, the on all the time. It, it, it's great to be an art dealer, but the most, I think, impacting thing is that once you get on the cycle of doing shows, um, I think I said to you before we, we started recording, you, you, you're locked into it then. As soon as the show is open, you're already writing the exhibition catalogue for the next show. You're already starting to think about the film for the next show. You're already doing the contract for the show after that. Organizing the packing, the shipping, the insurance, all the stuff, the boring bureaucratic paperwork that goes with it. And so it can feel like at times um, you're never seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And I know that come the end of the year, by, by sort of, you know, the 20th of December, I'm, I'm kind of rattling a bit. I'm kind of like, I've done a lot of work this year. I just need to step away and we close in January. We don't really start showing works again until probably mid to late February, when it starts to get lighter in the evenings. When people leave work at 5, 5.30, and if it's light outside, if there's sunshine in the sky, then they will come to a show again. They'll come uh, to an, an event in the evening. Not in the pissing rain or the snow. <laughs> yeah. 
they just want to start. I mean, there are cycles to the art market. You know, people buy things in the spring to um, do their houses up for summer. Then they tend to not do much in the summer because they're relaxing and having a holiday and just chilling out. And then they start to buy stuff again in the autumn. And uh, because they're doing their houses up for Christmas, for when they have Christmas parties and guests and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's learning when, it's only when you've been in business for two or three years that you see where those cycles are. So now I can plan a bit more sensibly about what I do with my time. I won't be open in August. You know, I'm going to chill out in August. Most of my clients, as I said, have second houses in the south of France and the Caribbean. Yes, and they're there in August, are they? They're having a holiday. They're, they're away. They're away. So um, it's making the most of the time with your family and friends, the people that, that, that you care for most um, at the mo- most appropriate times of the year. It's super important to plan that in. And, and in January and February, that's when I do that. That's when I kind of work out what my year ahead is. My goals this year, aside from selling really interesting artworks, is to work with interesting artists. Uh, we're talking to Grayson Perry at the moment. I love him. Well, I think he's fantastic. He's like a national treasure. And I love I'd love to do a Grayson Perry show here at some point in Jersey in the future. His whole family are just fascinating. Like he's got a daughter that's really fascinating. Yeah. His wife, like every time I see anything about them, I'm just like, I want to go around to their house for dinner. Yeah, he's an interesting character. We did a show last September called Best of British, and there was a piece in there uh, by Grayson Perry that I sold, and it was kind of a portrait of him on a bike, but it was surrounded by, in this kind of fantasy landscape, that had all these words around sort of the, the, the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist, if you like. It was about global warming and the internet and, you know, Donald Trump and fake news. And it was a typical kind of Perry image. Um, he was dressed in drag on a, on a giant motorbike. It was a very funny image, but at the very bottom of the image, there was this speech bubble that said tax evasion. Now, if you're in Jersey, which is an offshore financial services center, you're going to have lots of clients who are um, working in, in trust companies and law firms and overseeing financial structures that potentially, shall we say, might help people in certain jurisdictions to avoid paying tax. And I remember this chap came up and he said to me, I love Grayson Perry. He was an accountant, actually. And he said, I love Grayson Perry. Uh, I watched I watched his programs during lockdown, Grayson Perry's lockdown programs. And, uh, you know, he's a wonderful character. And we talked about this image, and he bought the image. He bought this print. But he said to me before he bought it, do you think he will change it? And I said, to what? And he said, do you think he would maybe get rid of tax evasion and change it to tax planning? No, because that's the whole comment. (laughs) That's the whole point. Now, Grayson is obviously someone who doesn't like tax havens. And so bringing him to Jersey and enabling him to see the island, to meet the people and to have that discussion about the nature of, you know, financial services and the Jersey economy and and all of that within the context of contemporary British society, I think would be brilliant. So um, I've just got to find a date to do it and make sure that it's safe to do it and all of those things at the moment. about a masculinity and he went and had loads of 
really fascinating conversations with men from loads of different kind of parts of society about what it meant to be a man. Yeah. And it was so interesting. And he's just, yeah, he's not afraid to have those conversations, is he? Like he just gets straight to it. <laughs> no, I mean, I think if you, if there's, there's, my daughter brought me a couple of books on Grace and Perry at Christmas. They're only paperbacks, but they're, they're, um, they're sort of semi-biographical books about his formative years and growing up. And he felt, like all sort of uh, pubescent teenagers, the need to express himself sexually at a young age. And it, and it came out through cross-dressing. It was, mm-hmm. it was just something that he felt was totally natural and compelled to do. He had a disciplinarian of a father. He grew up in a difficult family background. Parents were separated. Um, he had to create his own identity, and it, and it, and it came out in that way. And he, he felt embarrassed about it. He was in the cadet force at the time, so he had a skinhead haircut. Skinheads were in the 70s, a kind of duriger, kind of cultural form of, of teenage expression. Um, but there he was putting, ordering wigs from the local wig shop and getting his mate to pick it up for him and drop it around and all that kind of stuff and dressing up as a woman at the age of 14 or 15. It's fascinating. I mean, nowadays, we wouldn't look on that behavior so dogmatically, but at the time, um, it was thought of as deeply perverse and strange and unusual and unhealthy and not British and all of those kind of... It's amazing now, though, isn't it? Because there must be so many people that who see him doing what he wants to do and the way he wants to do it and think, oh, cool, that's somebody who's doing it. <laughs> liberating, I think, for generations of younger people who may have suffered from those stigmas in, in, in their formative years. So, um, yeah, I love Grayson. I interviewed him many years ago when I was a journalist for the art newspaper. Um, there was um, AXA, the French insurance company, uh, the go-to people for art dealers and museums. They have specialist art policies, but they sponsored the Art Catalogue of the Year publication. And the award ceremony was hosted by Grayson Perry in the top roof space at Tate Modern in London. And I went as a journalist with uh, a camera crew to interview him um, during the award ceremony and after. And he was the most entertaining, kind, generous and warm individual I'd ever met at that point. He was outrageously funny. And he was with his wife, and I didn't know it was his wife. And I asked him at the time, what does your wife think of this? And then turns out she was actually much funnier than he was. She told me all about the family background and what living with Grayson was like. So, um, yeah, I think he's brilliant. I think they're a brilliant family and a kind of role model for 21st century British families. 100%. Well, it's been so nice talking to you, Chris. But before we wrap up, I want to make sure that if anyone's interested in you and the work you're doing in your gallery, where can they find you? So, thank you. That's very kind of you. The gallery is called Private and Public. And um, you can go online to privateandandpublic.com um, and you can have a look at what we've got coming up uh, in the next few months. Um, there's current exhibitions and past exhibitions and future exhibitions sections to the website. Um, so you can go and have a look on there. Um, we're on Instagram, um, Facebook, LinkedIn, la la la. And I'll put all the links in our show notes so that everyone can find them. Yes. So I think we're relatively easy to find. We are a modern and contemporary art dealership based in Jersey and the Channel Islands. So Google will get you there. 
<laughs> well, it's been so nice talking to you. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Take it easy. Thanks a lot. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. You can tune in every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher for the next free episode. And why not subscribe now so you don't miss out? If you really enjoyed this episode, then please don't forget to leave it a five-star review because they really do help. And why not head over to Instagram, share the episode with your family and friends and tag us too. Thanks for listening and don't forget to stay connected. <laughs>